The Apostle Paul loved sharing the gospel of Jesus. He loved planting new churches. He loved pouring into churches. And he also loved raising up leaders. And during one of his ministry journeys, it's recorded in Acts chapter 16, he was in a city called Lystra. Some say Lystra. He was in this city, and he ran across a young guy who was full of zeal. He was on fire for Jesus. His name was Timothy. And so the Apostle Paul, with Timothy's mom and his grandma, they, they just saw the, the anointing of the Lord on him. They laid hands on this young man and anointed him into the ministry of the gospel. And it wasn't long after that that the Apostle Paul noticed that there were some issues in Ephesus. Remember when we studied Ephesians? Uh, every one of the churches of the New Testament had issues. Not like today. We don't have any issues in the body of Christ today. Everything's just perfect, right? Uh, we, we've got it all figured out anyway. Um, <laughs> this is why we study God's Word. Help us, Lord, help us, right? But there were some issues in this church in Ephesus, man. There were some things going wrong. There was some false teaching, which seemed to be a common issue in the early churches and, and still can be an issue today. And so who did the Apostle Paul tap on the shoulder and send to go deal with the issues in this big metropolis of Ephesus? It was a big, thriving city. He tapped Timothy, the young Timothy, on the shoulder and he said, go fix it. Go fix it. You know, as, as we're going to be looking at the first and second letters uh, to Timothy, it got me thinking, are we passing down a strong faith to the next generation? Are you passing down faith in Christ Jesus to the next generation? Does the next generation see you? Us, diligently, with great zeal, seeking the Lord, laying our lives down for the gospel of Jesus, for something bigger than us, but something eternal? Are we intentionally being fruitful and multiplying in our faith? Are we leaving the spiritual legacy? Psalm 145, verse says, one generation commends your works, God, to another. They tell of your mighty acts. That's what we're called to do. Tell the next generation about Jesus. And have the next generation standing on our shoulders, going to whole new levels with the Lord. Instead of having to figure it all out again or, or fix the issues that, that we caused because we weren't engaging with God and bringing them into this world. Look, what kind of legacy are we leaving? You know, it's not bad, it's not wrong. And even Scripture would say we are to pass money down to our kids, but doing that isn't going to keep them out of hell. The kind of estate planning that we should be involved in is a spiritual estate planning where we are passing down faith in Christ Jesus first and foremost to our children. Parents, that's when we win. Grandparents, that's when we win. And it's never too late. I don't care how old your kids are. I don't care if you feel like it's already come and gone and, and you missed your opportunity. No, you haven't. You have breath today to glorify God and to be an example to your family today. And not just 
your biological family. But like the Apostle Paul, we are to have spiritual children. It should start in the house, but it should go beyond that. So welcome back to Mission 27. It's our journey through the 27 books of the New Testament. Today we're going to be tackling 1 Timothy. The title of the message is Doing Church God's Way. Doing Church God's Way. So Paul didn't have any biological children, but he sure did have some spiritual children. We're going to be talking about one of those today and, and then next week and then another one the following week as we talk about Titus. But he wrote a letter to his spiritual children because like all of our children, we need encouragement. And in his first letter, he makes this statement right off the bat. He says, to, my, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. And so after he sent Timothy off to Ephesus to, to handle some big issues for a young man to handle, he sent him a letter, and this is the letter that we're going to be looking at today. We call it 1 Timothy. And this letter is to follow up with him, to encourage him, to, um, to instruct him on how to successfully fulfill this big mission of helping straighten out and, and encourage and establish a firm foundation in this church in Ephesus. I believe the key verse that really helps us understand the purpose of this entire letter is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 where Paul says, these things I write to you. And again, he's writing to Timothy. I write to you, and I, and I hope to come to you shortly. But, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So what's this letter all about? It's, it's, it's helping Timothy understand how to conduct himself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, they're often called pastoral epistles because these are letters that the Apostle Paul is writing to young leaders in the church, young pastors in local churches, encouraging them and helping them navigate pastoring a local church. So Paul opens up the letter with the main reason that he sent Timothy to Ephesus. And like many of the other new churches, there were issues with false teaching. And he, and he sent Timothy there, first and foremost, to confront these false teachers, to deal with this strange and twisted teaching that they were pumping out there. So we pick it up here in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why? So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Why? Because such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And so there were some teachers there in Ephesus who were taking the opportunity to present some strange teaching. And as you read, you see that, that for some reason they were, they were teaching strange stuff about marriage, strange teaching about sex, strange teaching about food. They weren't consistent with what Jesus had taught. They weren't consistent with what the other apostles were teaching. And in 1 Timothy 1.20, we see Paul say, among them are Hymenaeus. And now, this is how you don't want your name, by the way, to be in the Bible. I'm just saying right there. Among these false teachers who were, who were 
teaching all this weird, strange stuff were Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at some of the teaching that's been going on in the life groups this morning, and then we're going to see if one of the leaders should be handed over to Satan or not this morning. You think we should do that? Y'all, sometimes I think that, and I know that church is probably a little too comfortable, a little too easy. Maybe it should be a little more dangerous. <laughs> um, they, uh, um, so among them, these false teachers were Hymenaeus, Alexander, whom Paul handed over to Satan. Look, bad doctrine shouldn't be tolerated. I think that's the message we're seeing right here off the bat in 1 Timothy. Bad doctrine should not be tolerated. It should be dealt with. It should be handled. Speculations, myths shouldn't be tolerated. And I thought about that. I thought, what are speculations? What are myths? What are some examples of that? And you know what, what ding, ding, ding in my head that, that I thought of right away was things like Bible codes. You know, things like where we take the Bible and we treat it like a, a boggle game. And we kind of, we take it and we, we shake it all about and up and all that. Then we open it and we say, let's do, if we go crosswise with these letters and, and, and upside down and backwards with these phrases and we assign numbers to different things, then we can find secret messages that God has for us. Meanwhile, the body of Christ doesn't even understand the very plain black and white and red letters that are very clearly presented here in the Word. Myths. And speculations, that's just an example. There's all kinds of them. All kinds of myths and speculations. You know, I'm convinced that there are many, many quote-unquote preachers or teachers or writers or theologians out there, and I'm using, you know, this on purpose, right, that so badly, so badly want to have something worthwhile to say that instead of understanding the most worthwhile thing they can say is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus, they, they, they think they have to have something new and exciting, something that'll get people's attention and sell their books and get them views on YouTube or whatever. And so they just come up with all these myths and speculations, and they start to try to draw things and, and knit things together from God's word that are myths and speculation, nonsense. They have, they have Christians chasing nonsense. And Paul says, Paul didn't just say, stop it. He handed them over to Satan. So Paul brings it back to the basics as he's talking to Timothy here, writing to Timothy. He reiterates that the purpose of the Bible isn't to create speculation and confusion. And I'm going to tell you this. If you become a student of God's Word, speculation and confusion will begin to depart from your mind and your heart about God and about what He has said. Because God's Word isn't confusing. Not if you read it. If you listen to crazy people out there who are making it confusing, yeah, it's confusing. If you just read it, God lays it out pretty plainly. And I hope that that's what we're getting as we're going through this Mission 27 exercise and actually reading the 27 books of the New Testament 
and reading each book during a week, preferably in one sitting, so you can just get the full message and realize, oh, that's what it says. I get it. I get it. So Paul brings it back to the main purpose of the Bible. It's not to create speculation and confusion. Rather, it's to expose the human condition. Y'all, we got a sin problem. Humanity has a sin problem, and we need a Savior. You got a problem, and you need Jesus. That's the message of the Bible right there. Very clearly and succinctly. See, correct doctrine and teaching won't bring confusion. It's not complicated, and it's not hard to understand. Rather, correct doctrine presents the grace of God revealed in Jesus to save those who believe and receive the gift of salvation. That's the Bible. So, how do we as the church keep the main thing the main thing? And keep from going off in crazy directions into all this myths and speculation and division and, and nonsense that Paul keeps having to deal with in these local churches. How do we do that? How do we stay connected to Jesus and how do we stay in a healthy way connected to one another? Well, it's going to surprise you. Maybe it won't. But Paul tells Timothy, the first thing you need to do is you need to, you need to have some prayer meetings. You need to have some prayer meetings. When you get to Ephesus, first thing you need to do is you, you need to get people together, and you all need to start praying together. And so here we pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, first of all, you want to deal with the issues? You want to get this church back on the right track, going the right direction? First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. In other words, first of all, here's what you need to do when you get to Ephesus, Timothy. Here's how you're going to fix things there. You're going to start by praying and calling some prayer meetings. Because people who pray together stay together. People who pray together get God's heart together. Do you want a healthy church? It starts with prayer. At Evident Life Church, this church was birthed out of a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and that Wednesday night prayer meeting continues to this day. Continues to this day. Prayer at Evident Life Church, we call it the taproot. The roots of an Evident Life go deep. D-E-E-P, discipleship, evangelism, encountering God's presence, and prayer. Prayer is not the last, the, 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 the you know, oh, we got to slip something in. No, no. Prayer is the taproot. It's the deepest, most significant root of what brings life to Evident Life Church. How do we know what God is doing? We pray. We seek His face. We spend time with Him. How do we hear the voice of God? We pray. How do, we, how do I know what, what God, where He wants to lead us? What, what sermon series or book of the Bible that we're supposed to study next? We pray. We seek God. And He leads us. And he leads us to himself, and he knits us together as a church. You want to have a healthy church? You want to have a healthy marriage? You want to have a healthy family? Pray together. Pray together. Pray together. First of all, pray, Paul says to Timothy. And notice, though, Paul doesn't tell him just to pray for one another. You know, the frozen chosen. 
come together. Hey, we're all warm and fuzzy inside the four walls of this little church building, and it's all great. No, Paul says, no, you need to pray for those outside the church. You need to pray, actually, for some people that are probably bothering you right now, and right now, too, like government. Pray for your government. Pray for the leaders in your city, in your state, in your nation. Pray for them. And pray that there be peace in your land. Why? Because peace in the land creates an environment for the gospel to be able to spread. The gospel that, that everybody needs to hear. You know, Paul got kicked out of a lot of cities. He would go into communities and he would preach the gospel and they would kick him out. They'd run him out. They would beat him and leave him for dead. And so there he was. He wasn't preaching the gospel in that city anymore. Paul understood that a community that was open and peaceful to allowing the gospel to be preached was a community that he could walk right in and, man, everyone could hear the good news of Jesus. So Paul tells the church to pray that you could live in an environment like that. Pray for the leaders. Why? Because God wants all people to be saved. So in contrast to the false teachers, Paul finds it necessary to remind Peter, I mean to remind Timothy, that God wants to rescue all people. Point number, I'm finally at point number one. You don't have lunch plans, do you? All right, that's a joke. Everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. I saw some people just get a little edgy right there. It's going to be okay. I mean, we're not going to hand anybody over to Satan, and you're going to get to lunch on time. It's going to be okay. Everything's all right. Okay. Point number one, God's provision for all. Maybe you've heard some people teach that, and, and, and when you read the book of, of, of 1 Timothy, you see that most of 1 Timothy is about how to do church, meaning how to have a healthy church, the, the do this and the don't do this, how to handle issues when they arise in the church, how to have healthy leaders, who those leaders should be, all those types of things. But there's one doctrinal issue that is touched on right up front by, Tim, by Paul to Timothy, and that's God's provision to all. And, and, and I just want to ask a question. Have you heard of some people that teach that Jesus only bore the sins of certain people? That he only bore the sins of an elect, predetermined group chosen for salvation by God before the foundations of the earth? Meaning that Jesus didn't bear the sins of every individual that's ever lived. So there's teaching that's, that's, that, that goes that way. But I just want to be clear just from my perspective as a pastor and as I read God's Word, and even as we read 1 Timothy, and as Paul is making sure that he reiterates an important doctrine and truth about Christ and about his work on the cross. And that is that the Bible, as I read it, and I do read it and read it and read it, the Bible clearly and continually underscores that the atoning work of Jesus is not limited. And I want to say that very clearly and very confidently as a follower of Jesus, that the atoning work of my Savior, of Jesus, the Savior of the world, is not limited. Rather, the work of the cross is a beautiful and it's a powerful provision for all who believe. And Paul reiterates this truth to Timothy as a foundational doctrine in this letter. 
It's really the primary and maybe the only doctrinal statement and issue that he deals with in this letter. And let's go back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and then we'll get to it. Where again, Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And then he says, this is good. And pleases God our Savior, God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Paul felt the need to underscore this truth to Timothy as he's going and dealing with the different issues that he's encountering in the church in Ephesus. You see, this is the message of the Bible, that, that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. It's the constant message of God's Word. It's the message of the New Testament. And it's the message that started with Jesus. When Jesus says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe upon him would not perish but have eternal life. And so the atoning work of Christ is the one and only available and effective sacrifice for the sins of every person. Scripture's clear. Paul continues to talk about this to other churches too. We find it in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Sounds like we just read in 1 Timothy, right? That he was a ransom for all. That one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Again, 1 Timothy 2.6, that's what it says. But the, the atonement of Christ is not limited. It's not. God made provision for all people who have ever lived. Not even just from the time. The, the, the atonement of Christ wasn't even just for people who have lived and died since Christ went to the cross and was resurrected. It's even for those who went before Christ. Because all are saved only through the atoning work of Christ. His atonement is not limited in any way. But provision for all doesn't mean salvation for all. For it's only those who receive it and who believe. By faith. John 1.12 says, Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The work of Christ, his life, death and resurrection was a ransom for all people. And how do people take hold of that? Right here, John 1, 12. They believed. They believed. They believed. So have you received Jesus? Have you believed? 
I can confidently say this to everyone in this room, everyone watching this video for all time, whoever's watching this, whenever you're watching this, that Jesus spilled his blood for you. He spilled his blood for you. Because God so loved you. God created you, not for damnation, but he created you for relationship with him. He created you to walk with him, to know him now and forever. That's his heart and his desire for you. He knit you together in your mother's womb to be with him. Sin separated us from God. Sin got in the way of all of that. But God's love, he sent his son Jesus, who became a ransom for you and me and all. And all who believe in the work of his son Jesus are restored in that relationship with God. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That's love. So have you recognized your need for Jesus? Have you recognized Jesus? Have you believed? Have you received that ransom, that work, that salvation? So this was a primary doctrinal message in this letter to Timothy. But then he pivots and he starts to talk about church life. Because you know what, y'all? There's some issues in church life. Why? Because y'all are in it. What are y'all looking at me for? I got it all figured out, man. You know, if y'all just would get in line and get in order, you know, everything would be fine. No, anyway. There's some issue in church life. And so Paul dealt with it. He had to deal with it. And, and, and first he starts with some issues surrounding men and women who'd been influenced by these corrupt preachers. And so we get to point number two, God's call for order in the church. So we got God's provision for all. That's kind of the doctrinal issue that, that Paul addresses to Timothy there. But then he starts getting these practical things about doing church, and it's God's call for order in the church. So we're going to start with the men. There was a group of men who were stirring up some, some trouble. They had disputes. They had anger. They were arguing about theology like we never do that. But sometimes you got to argue about theology. But when it gets nitpicky and silly and just divisive, come on, man. So Paul tells these guys, here's, how he, here's, here's what he tells these guys. Y'all are stirring up issues. You're all getting on the wrong page. You got to get on the right page. So what does he tell them to do? We go right back to what he said earlier. Pray. That's his instruction to these men that were causing disputes and causing issues and stirring up anger in the body of Christ because they were listening to this false teaching. He tells them, y'all need to pray because prayer is powerful, and again, prayer draws us together. So now we're going to talk about the women. See, it's usually the men who always get all the talking to and always get all the, you know, this and that. But, but we're going to turn it on the women today, men. You okay with that? So, so men, so just so women, so you understand, men have some issues in the church, all right? So we just dealt with that. There were disputes, all that. They need to pray. So when your man is causing issues and disputes, you say, baby, you need to pray. You need to get together with some other men, and you need to pray. 
because God got some work to do in your life. And that would be great. Maybe we're going to see like 50, 60 more men at Wednesday night prayer, you know, and so I don't know what, what might happen because of that. But Paul turns the attention then to some wealthy women who were out of control. There were some wealthy women in this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very wealthy community. It was a port community. They had a lot of money. I've been to ancient Ephesus. Man, they got a lot going on there. They had the beautiful, I mean, they had, they had this massive coliseum. They had this, this amazing library. They had all kinds of wealth. So there were a lot of wealthy women that were part of the church there in Ephesus. And so Paul turns his attention to some of these wealthy women who were literally out of control. Their church gatherings were no longer about exalting Jesus and turning the attention to Jesus. Instead, these women, they were coming like it was some kind of like fashion show or something like that. Like, look at me, look at me, I'm all that, and, and listen to me, and I got a lot to say, and yada-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm grateful that that doesn't happen here at Evan Life Church, because I'd have to hold, hand you over to Satan with, you know, Manius and Alexander and those folks and all that. But anyway, but it was going on in Ephesus. It was like church was a fashion show and a gossip session and a this and a that and a la da 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 type of a thing. That's what was going on. It was all about being seen and heard. But here's the deal. These, these out-of-control, wealthy women were undermining leadership. And they were exerting improper control over the church gatherings. And they were, they were repeating and teaching and getting all on board and excited about all this false theology that was coming from these false teachers. It was a mess. It was, it, it was not about Jesus. It was about all kinds of other stuff. So Paul tells Timothy to shut these out-of-control women down. I'm surprised I didn't get any men that said, Amen. Anyway, smart. You're much smarter than I am. You see, you're a lot smarter than I am. Anyway, I'm up here preaching about it, right? But anyway, it's the Word of God deals with it. You see, that's the beauty of it, is that I get to talk about all kinds of things that, that I usually wouldn't want to go there. You know what I'm saying? But God's Word goes there, so we go there. We go there. If God has something to say about it, then we need to talk about it and not be afraid of it. So Paul says, you got to shut these out-of-control women down. And then, so here we are, 1 Timothy 2.11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Come on, women. You just heard me say that. Why are you talking right now? What are you saying? You must be quiet. Paul then turns attention to, to, talks a little bit about Adam and Eve and about what happened there. And then he speaks about headship, which I encourage you to do a deep dive in the whole doctrine and topic, the biblical presentation of headship. We're not going to go all into that right now, but it is the doctrine, it is the biblical principle behind what we're talking about at this point and what Paul is dealing with here in the church in Ephesus. And so theologians have differing perspective on what, what's Paul saying here when he says, hey, these women, they got to be quiet, got to be submissive. I don't permit them to, to teach or assume authority over man. Um, they got to be quiet. So what's Paul saying? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out three different, there's, there's many different perspectives. I'm going to throw out three that are all fairly close to one another. Um, but anyway, check this out. So is Paul saying that some would say that Paul is prohibiting all women from ever teaching or ministering to men in any church in any way? So some would say that. I would say that's a, let me, let me say it. So that's a, there, there's, there's 
two perspectives. There's, there's something called complementarianism and egalitarianism. Okay? And so I'm going to go ahead and say right now I'm in the complementarian camp. Um, and, and that is to say this. Complementarian means that, that men and women have complementary giftings and roles that God has given us. He created man and woman. He didn't just create human, you know, and then we just kind of decide what we're going to be and how we're going to act and what our role and purpose is in life. No, God created man and woman, and he created us to be complementary of one another. It's not good that a man should be alone. He, he needs a woman because we're complementary. Not one better, other worse, you know. He, man, she, woman, you know, and, and all this. No, we're complementary. And when we come together and be who God created us to be, man, that's when God is glorified. That's when everything starts happening. That's when we win in life, in marriage, in the church, in, 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 in all of that. So, amen. There's a woman speaking up in church again. So anyway, Paul... <laughs> So is Paul, so some would say Paul's prudent all women from ever teaching or ministering to any man in a church in any way. I'm going to go and say that that, that would be an ultra-complementarian perspective. So complementarians would say that men have a certain role in the church, women have another role in the church. I would say an ultra-complementarian, kind of a hard, I, I don't know if it was a right or left winger or whatever you want to call them, but, but a hardcore complementarian would say, yeah, women should just be seen but never heard, but seen only in a certain way, then all this kind of stuff. And Anyway, um, I would say that Paul contradicts that perspective in much of his other writing, as well as just the fact that he highlights this, this woman named Priscilla. Remember Priscilla and Aquila, who he hung out with and did ministry with and, and, and made tents with in a place called Corinth? And so he's hanging out with Priscilla and Aquila, and he highlights the fact that Priscilla herself, that Priscilla was, was one of the primary people who, would, who discipled and taught biblical doctrine to a guy named Apollos, who was actually another one of the apostles at the time. And so we can't say that, that, I would say anyway, we can't say that, that women should never, you know, engage with a man and, and talk about the Bible and, and doctrine and all that type of stuff. So I'll just throw that out there. Um, so, but some would say that that, that's, that is what Paul is saying in this passage. Others would say that Paul is prohibiting women uh, in 1 Timothy from senior leadership positions in the church, but if they aren't deceived by false teachers and bad doctrine, like these crazy, you know, wealthy, out-of-control women were, that they can teach in the church under male leadership or headship, which is why Paul then speaks of Adam and Eve and the headship principle um, right after he speaks about women being quiet in the church. Um, I would lean more in this direction of this second one right here, uh, which is also continues to be a form of complementarianism. But, uh, and, and this is where, when, when you read, and we're going to get into leadership here in just a little bit, where we see that, that, that eldership in the church or the overseer function of leadership in the church is very much spoken of as a male role in the church. But then we don't see the other roles in the church with those same distinctions. So anyway, any of this making sense? I probably should take a whole one, two, three, four sermons on this, but you're going to get it in a fire hose this morning. This is it. Um, the third one would be Paul's only prohibiting these specific women in Ephesus from teaching men because they're so out of control. These specific women are so out of control 
Um, and then he comments about Adam and Eve, just about these specific women saying, you know, these women are being deceived, and then they're trying to deceive the men, and you just got to shut them down. Um, but whatever view is taken, we can clearly see this in 1 Timothy from, from Paul, is that we can be sure that these Ephesian women needed to come under Timothy's leadership and get a proper view of doctrine and healthy church life. They were out of control. And I would say that any, anyone, male or female, that's out of control needs to be confronted because it's not healthy. It's just not healthy. So Paul points out in other passages of Scripture, uh, he wants these women under control. Why? Because so that they can not be kicked out of the church, but so that they can understand their complementary role and what God has really placed in them, what they really offer the body of Christ so that they can be like the other outstanding female leaders and ministers in the church that Paul highlights in his writing. People, like I said, Priscilla, you've got Junia, you've got Phoebe, who was a deaconess in the church. And so I'm just going to kind of lay it out there, just, just a quick 10,000-foot maybe view of my perspective. If you're wondering what, what's, who's Pastor Eric and, and primarily where is Evident Life Church in the spectrum of all this stuff, I'm a complementarian. I believe that there are distinct roles that God has given male and female in life, in marriage for sure, and in the body of Christ. There is a headship principle that God has laid out in humanity from the very beginning that we see it even in the Trinity itself then we see it in humanity, we see it in marriage, the headship principle, in family, the headship principle, and in the church, the principle of headship. There are just certain roles that God has given men and other roles that God has given women and other roles that God says, hey, it's for anyone based on who I've called, how I've called, and how I've anointed you. But in the body of Christ, there is a male senior leadership and oversight role. So at Evident Life Church, we have male elders, male overseers or bishops uh, in the church. Those are the different uh, synonyms for that particular position in the body of Christ. And I believe you're going to see, I know you're going to see that as you're reading 1 Timothy when it talks about uh, the leadership qualities and callings in the body of Christ. But there, there are other roles in the church, and everyone can minister under the covering of the leadership of the church and can use the gifts and the callings that God has given you in the body of Christ. You can use those, everyone. And so what do we see? We see somebody like, well, I'm going to get to that a little bit later. I'm just going to dive down to it. In, in Romans 16:1, for instance, Paul writes in Romans to the church in Romans, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. And he says, a deacon, diakonos, a deacon of the church in Centre. So, my perspective, complementary roles, male leadership, senior leadership, eldership in the body of Christ, the roles, other roles of ministering the gospel, ministering in the body of Christ, it's open to whoever God calls, male or female, to fulfill those roles, who he's gifted, who he's anointed, and who he's called for such a time as this under the leadership and the spiritual oversight of the elder team. So I throw that out there. Y'all got it? 
You probably already knew that. You kind of figured that out. That's kind of how we operate here at Evident Life Church. So there was a leadership crisis there in the church in Ephesus. Paul calls Timothy to appoint a small leadership team consisting of men, husbands and fathers. And Paul has some very clear standards for these overseers. So we get to point number three, God's standards for church leaders. And there's some pretty strict, pretty high, it's a high watermark to be an elder in a local church. And he says in 1 Timothy 3.1, here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, also known as an elder, or sometimes the word bishop is used for there, they desire a noble task. And then he outlines the character qualities and the life qualities of those leaders. And I want to say that, that we take those qualifications very seriously here at Evident Life Church. And that the elder team that we have at Evident Life Church are quality men who've proven themselves to be followers of Jesus, good husbands and, and fathers, and, and they understand the seriousness of the role of being an overseer in the body of Christ. It's no joke. It's a calling. And it's a responsibility before God. And the men who are the overseers, who are the elders in this church, take it very seriously. We meet regularly. We pray. We seek the Lord. We want to make sure that our doctrine and our life are spot on because we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the role that we've said yes to. So pray for the elder team, for the overseers here at Evident Life Church. Uh, pray for their families um, and bless them because they truly are a blessing to this church. And so Paul then says that the elders, they need to work with some other folks in the church because the elders can't do everything. If you look back in Acts, I believe it's chapter 6 or so, where the, the, um, the apostles were getting so busy just dealing with the ministry of the church. How many of you know there's a lot of ministry that goes on in the church? Some of you think, well, the pastor, man, he, he, he only works like two hours a week or something like that. And, and maybe longer if I preach longer. But, but no, there's, there's a lot of ministry that goes on in the body of Christ week in and week out. And, and just a couple people can't handle it. And so that's why we need the body of Christ to be engaged. Pastor Phil mentioned, man, we need people. I'm going to just go and say this. If you're breathing and moving, then you can be serving and ministering in this church at Evident Life. And I'm going, to, I'm going to take the opportunity to say this. In our family, you know your family. You know you're part of the family and not just a guest or a visitor when you do the dishes, when you do the chores, when you help out, and you take some ownership in it. Don't attend church. That's not biblical, y'all. Don't. Don't be church attendees. Be church members, engaged in the life and the ministry of the church, serving one another. Follow the example of our leader, Jesus, who was a servant of all, who laid down his life, his rights, his time, his whatever to pour into other people. We talked about how, what, what kind of legacy are we going to leave? Man, we got, it, it, it takes some work to leave a legacy, a spiritual legacy. It doesn't just happen magically. It doesn't just happen because there's some pastors that, that are on staff. It happens because we're the church. So just spend some time praying about that, you know, asking God, what, what's my role? How can I engage? 
doesn't have to be every week. It doesn't, it, I mean, but there's something. I believe there's something. So there's, there's a, a challenge I'm going to throw out. There's something. And it's better to give than to receive. And I know that you'll be blessed as you use the gifts and the opportunity to bless others in and through the church. And I know some of you are doing ministry outside the church, and that's great too. That's great too. So please don't take that as some kind of a heavy hand. I'm not doing that. I'm just encouraging you in the things of the Lord. It's good to live God's way. So, so God said, hey, uh, or Paul said, hey, you got to appoint some elders. you got to have those spiritual over, overseers, those quality men who are going to help oversee spiritually and take on that responsibility in the church. But then you got to surround them with, a, with some deacons and deaconesses. you gotta, you got to surround them with a group of men and women who will actually lead the ministry of the church. And, and those people who lead the ministries in the church, they got to have the same kind of character qualities. They, they need to be people who are serious with God and who are following the Lord. And we're trusting God. It says, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. In the same way, the women, some, some translate that as the deacons' wives or women deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy. So same way as the deacons. The women, also in ministry, doing the ministry in the church, operating in the church, are to be worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And again, I mentioned Phoebe being a deaconess in the church in Century. So I, I just want to clearly say this as the pastor of this church. Women, you have a role in this church. And as the Lord has anointed you and called you in areas of ministry, man, step up, make yourself available. Let's let God, let's have God, let's see God move powerfully through every single one of us here in the body of Christ. It's when all the members are together, joined together in Christ Jesus, operating and functioning as God has called us and equipped us to function, that we are the strongest. And this broken, hell-bound world needs a strong church. It needs a church that's fully functioning. And man, I see this church that way, but I want to call us even to the next level in that. And my sisters in the Lord, I want to call you to the next level. And that brothers in the Lord, I want to call you to the next level. And let's be the church, fully operational. Point number four, the final point, God's instruction on money matters. So there are other practical things that, that, that Paul just kind of one-offs and deals with in his letter to Timothy. But he, he, he deals with some money issues. How many of you know money causes issues? How many of you know money is just part of life? It is. It's real. It's part of life. It's something that we, we have to learn how to deal with because money plays a big role. It can do a lot of good. It can cause a lot of sin. So how do we steward money? We know this. God wants us to be generous with one another, benevolent and generous with one another. But what we're seeing Paul instruct Timothy in is wise generosity. We're supposed to be generous, but with wisdom. Every need and every request shouldn't be treated the same. Let me say that again because it's going to ruffle some of y'all's feathers here. Every request, every need should not be treated the same. Christianity is not socialism. That's what I'm reading in there. 
As I read 1 Timothy, I say, oh, mm-mm. These people who say Christianity, socialism, Christianity, communism, they kind of, that's how it's supposed to be. Uh-uh. Every need, every request shouldn't be treated the same way. So Paul says, give to widows. Help the widows who are in need. But then he says, but, but wait a minute. But only those who have no other way to provide for themselves. Only those who cannot work themselves. Take care of them. Only those, then he says, who can't remarry. Why? Because if they get married, then their husband, that's his responsibility. But, but only help those who don't have any other family members who can care for them. By the way, we need to care for our family members. That's biblical. That's godly. Y'all young people, help take care of your parents. Seriously. I'm saying that now because I'm getting older. And I'm like, hey, take care of your parents, boy. You know? But Paul does. He says, look, we need to, we need to help the widows in our church, in the body of Christ. But not if they can help themselves. Not if they can work. Not, not if they can remarry and, and have somebody else take care of them. Not if, not if they have other family members uh, that, can, that can take care of them. Of their needs. So again, why stewardship, personal responsibility, Christianity is not socialism. And then he talks about pastors and preachers. And he said that pastors and preachers should never be in it for the money. Amen. And I want to go ahead and say this. Most, the vast majority of pastors are not in it for the money. The vast majority of pastors have sacrificed so much to answer the call that God has on their life. Have walked away from lucrative careers or lucrative possibilities and potentials. Have invested savings, 401ks and IRAs in order to be able to minister. The vast majority of pastors are not in it, not even closely in it for the money. There are some outliers there, and they'll be dealt with. But then Paul says, hey, pastors, preachers, those leaders that you're appointing, make sure they're not in it for the money. But then Paul says, but take care of them. Now, you think this is self-serving? Okay, maybe it is. But I'm going to say it because Paul says it here. But take care of them. And he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. There's this whole mentality out there, and I'm grateful that we don't experience that here at Evident Life Church because here's our perspective. Our perspective is, is that the body of Christ, if able, should do at least as good as the world does with taking care of people who are working in and for them. You know what I'm saying? This whole mentality that if you're going to be in ministry for Jesus, that somehow you, you got to be treated less than, and that's some kind of holy thing. No, it's not true. I want to make sure that we pay the staff at this church at or above what's going on out there in the world. As far as personal finances then, wealth isn't bad. That's another thing that we find in 1 Timothy. Wealth isn't bad. It's not a bad deal. 
But first and foremost, be rich in good works. Paul says this, he says, speaking of the rich, he says, command them, command the rich, not to be poor, but command them to be first of all rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Let's stand. Y'all, as you read 1 Timothy, I just want you to, to look at it from this perspective. God's ways are always best. And so as we do church, as we operate as a body of Christ, we want to do it God's way. We want to do church God's way. Now, 1 Timothy is going to be eye-opening for you. It might be challenging for some of you. It's going to provide practical theological insight and instruction about how to, how to be part of the body of Christ. It's going to give you some insight and, and perspective on, on the leadership in your local church and what that should look like and maybe why it looks the way it looks or operates the way that it operates here at Evident Life Church. But the most important thing is this, is that whenever you're in the Word of God, it's going to change you. It's going to challenge you. Let it do that this week as you read through 1 Timothy. And again, I want to go back to something I mentioned in the very beginning. Remember that Paul is writing this to a young guy who's given his life to the ministry of Christ and, and to serve in the church. Pray for the pastors of this church who are doing the same thing. Ask God to give you a heart for the younger generation, the next generation. And give you ideas and, and ways that maybe you can help, like Paul, be a spiritual father or mother or grandfather or grandmother to the next generation that's coming up behind us. It, this world is messy. This world is full assault against this next generation. This world needs more Timothys that are on fire for Jesus. And those Timothys need Pauls and Grandpa Pauls and Grandma Pauls and, and so on and so forth. Paulettes, I guess, not gra Grandma Pauls. Grandma Paulettes pouring into their lives, encouraging them, coming alongside of them saying, yeah, you're doing it. Good job. Let's be those people to the next generation. I want to invite the ministers to come forward. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the instruction that you have for us, Lord, for the theological doctrinal instruction, for the practical instruction on how to be your people, on how to be your church, God. 